uh, scripture this morning from 1 Corinthians uh, chapter 5. I'm going to be reading verses 1 through 13. It is actually reported that there is immorality among you, an immorality of such a kind as does not exist even among the Gentiles, that someone has his father's wife. You have become arrogant and have not mourned instead, so that the one who had done these deeds would be removed from your midst. For I, on my part, though absent in body, but present in spirit, have already judged him who has so committed this, as though I were present. In the name of our Lord Jesus, when you are assembled, and I with you in spirit, with the power of our Lord Jesus, I have decided to deliver such a one to Satan for the destruction of his flesh, so that his spirit may be saved in the day of the Lord Jesus. Your boasting is not good. Do you not know that with a little leaven leavens a whole lump of dough? Clean out the old leaven, so that you may be a new lump, just as you are in fact unleavened. For Christ, our Passover, also has been sacrificed. Therefore, let us celebrate the feast, not with the old leaven, nor with the leaven of malice and wickedness, but with the unleavened bread of sincerity and truth. I wrote you in my letter not to associate with immoral people. I did not at all mean with the immoral people of this world, or with the covetous, or swindlers, or the idolaters, for then you would have to go out of this world. But actually, I wrote to you not to associate with any so-called brother if he is an immoral person, or covetous, or an idolater, or a viler, or a drunkard, or a swindler, not even to eat with such a one. For what I have to do with judging outsiders, do you not judge those who are within the church? But those who are outside, God judges. Remove the wicked man from among yourselves. Father, we thank you for this day that you have blessed us with. Father, we thank you for this passage. Father, we thank you for your word. Father, we ask that you be with our brother Reed today. Father, let him speak your words. Give him peace, comfort, guide him, Father. Father, we ask that you be with us as a congregation. Father, not to fall into the temptations of this world. Father, give us guidance, give us direction. Father, let us lean heavily upon your word. Father, let us trust in your word. Your word is good, your word is truth. Father, at this time, I'd like to thank the men and women who have sacrificed for our freedom, that we have the ability together in this church, to freely worship and praise you. Father, thank you for their service, for their sacrifices. Bless them and bless their, fa their families, Father. Father, we ask that you be with our teachers today. Guide them. Give them strength. Teach our youth. Protect them. Father, we just ask that your hand be upon this congregation and upon this service. Thank you. Thank you for your son, Jesus. It's in his name that we pray. Amen.
Well, this might be considered one of the hard sayings of the Bible, but as J. Vernon McGee used to say, God didn't call me to apologize for the Word of God, but to preach the Word of God. And we are not here to protect you from the Bible. We are here to proclaim, preach, expose you to everything that is in the Word of God. We've been going through a series called Members of One Another, and one of the things that we are to commit to as members is to gently but faithfully deal with sin within the church. That's a commitment that we have. That's a responsibility that we have as believers together in the church. Now, church is to be a place of love and peace and unity in the spirit. Church is not to be a place for organizational politics or backstabbing slander, accusations, or cliques. We honor one another. We serve one another. We accept one another. We love each other. The church is to be a place of praise and thanksgiving and rejoicing and singing and happiness and maybe even dancing. Uh, We come together with one mind and one voice to glorify God. The church is a holy place. God is here. God is here among us by His Spirit. We are His people. We are saints. We are holy ones. We are His temple. And this is all wonderful, very wonderful, and it is so good. The church is such a good and glorious place. What could possibly go wrong? The short answer is sin. Paul said, do you not know that a little leaven leavens the whole lump of dough? A little sin, just a little sin that is not dealt with will affect the whole church, Paul said. You know, throughout the scriptures, particularly in the New Testament, God gives us many pictures to help us understand who we are. We are the body of Christ. We are the bride of Christ. We are God's temple. Well, here in 1 Corinthians 5, Paul tells us that we are an unleavened loaf or lump of dough. Okay, that's the word picture for us this morning. We are an unleavened lump of dough. Commentator David Guzik said, The leaven mentioned here isn't merely yeast, but it is a pinch of dough left over from the previous batch as in the making of sourdough bread. And some of us know here what that is all about. Okay? This is how bread... This is how bread was commonly leavened in the ancient world. And a little pinch of dough from the old lump could make a whole new lump of dough rise and puff up. So leaven is from the old lump. It represents something left over or bad from the past. Leaven in the Bible is a symbol of corruption or sin. So we are not to bring leaven into the new life. We are not to bring leftover sin. We're not to bring our our leftover sin into the church. 
When God delivered the Israelites from Egypt, Moses commanded the people, nothing leavened shall be seen among you. Nor shall any leaven even be seen among you in all of your borders. And Paul's point is that in the same way, the fellowship of the church is to be without leaven. In that sense, leaven is not to be even seen among us. So Paul said, clean out the old leaven so that you may be a new lump. Verse 7. We all come into the church with some sin and baggage from our past. There is not one among us with no sin. But the church is a place where we are coming out from sin, not going back into it. We are getting rid of the old leaven. We don't just say, nobody's perfect, and I'm not either, so sin is no big deal. Paul said in Ephesians 4, 12-14, put off or throw off your old sinful nature and your former way of life, which is corrupted by lust and deception, and put on your new self, created to be like God in true righteousness and holiness. Effectively, he said in that verse, the same thing that he's saying here in 1 Corinthians 5, clean out the old leaven. And then look carefully at the end of verse 7. Clean out the old leaven so that you may be a new lump just as you are, in fact, unleavened. In other words, we are to live an unleavened life because that is what we are. You are unleavened bread. The new covenant protection, or one of the main new covenant protections against sinning is not to emphasize over and over and over again what terrible sinners we are, but to emphasize that God has made us new people, a new creation, holy ones, temples of the Holy Spirit, or unleavened bread. This does not deny the reality that we actually still do sin and stumble in many ways, but we are to fix our eyes on the miraculous work of grace that Christ has performed in us. Paul said, you truly are unleavened bread for Christ our Passover lamb also has been sacrificed. We're unleavened bread because Christ was sacrificed for us. Christ died to release us from our leaven. Christ died to release us from our sins. He died to make you an unleavened loaf of bread. So we are to live that way. And that's what Paul says in verse 8. Therefore, let us celebrate the feast not with old leaven, nor with the, bread of, or with the leaven of malice and wickedness, but with the unleavened bread of sincerity and truth. We are unleavened bread, so let's live that way. Let's function that way together. Not with malice and wickedness, but with sincerity and truth. The Old Testament Passover feast uh, looked back to the night the angel of death passed over the Israelites because the blood of the lamb was sprinkled on the doorposts of their homes. 
And they celebrated, the Israelites celebrated this great deliverance in a feast without leaven because they ate unleavened bread the night that God led them out of Egypt. Now, Paul says, let us also celebrate our feast without leaven. Christ is our Passover lamb. He released us from the angel of death, so to speak. He released us from our sins by his blood. So we celebrate Jesus Christ. We celebrate him and what he has done for us. And we do that, we celebrate without leaven or without malice and wickedness, as Paul says. The Christian life is to be a celebration. Church life is to be a celebration. I totally believe every part of every Sunday morning we get together should be celebratory, should be a celebration. I don't apologize for moving around a little bit, for raising my hands. I, honestly, if I could do more, I would do more. I mean, it's part of what we're to do. We are happy in the Lord. We rejoice, we celebrate. Uh, Paul told us to rejoice in the Lord always. It's something that we should do together as a church. We should celebrate. But our Christian celebration is different from the world. The world celebrates in wickedness and sin most of the time. We celebrate without wickedness and malice. We celebrate without ill will towards one another, without envy, without jealousy, without evil thoughts and intentions, without the sins of our old life. That's basically what Paul is saying. Come, Church, let's celebrate, but do it without the old leaven of wickedness and malice. So we celebrate, and we do celebrate, but we do it in sincerity and truth. And I love those two words. Sincerity and truth are the marks of genuine repentance. Sin... Deception and lies always go together. Always. Sincerity and truth go with repentance. Sincerity and truth are the foundation of our fellowship with God and with each other. I mean, there is no way that you can know God and live with God and walk in the Spirit. There's no way that you can walk in love and in unity and in fellowship and intimacy with other believers without sincerity and truth and that's how we are to celebrate our feast now at Corinth uh, Paul was dealing with a sin that required removing a person from the church not all sin requires that of course but this one did and the Corinthians he said the Corinthians should have already done that they should have already removed this person and Paul is really rebuking them in this passage for not doing that and he tells them that they must proceed and go do that now and that's this is really how chapter 5 begins it's actually reported that there is sexual immorality among you and sexual immorality of such a kind as does not even exist among the gentiles namely that someone has his father's wife but you have become arrogant and have not mourned instead so that the one who had done this deed would be removed from your midst In other words, 
Paul's, or Paul was telling him, if you really had the right heart on this, if you really had a godly attitude about this sin, you would already have removed this person from your midst. And so he ends this passage in verse 13 with a very strong and quite frankly a rather blunt statement statement remove the wicked man from among yourselves it is dangerous and disobedient for any church to not deal with sin in the church and unfortunately that has become the general pattern of most all churches today it is unloving to the person and to the whole church family. A parent who never corrected a child would be a parent who doesn't really love his child and also would allow the whole family to suffer a lot of damage for never correcting a child. The church at Corinth had not only failed to judge this perverse sin in their midst, Paul says they were actually proud of themselves for allowing it. Some Christians feel that they are more loving or more spiritual by tolerating sin. They are proud that they are not narrow-minded or that they do not judge people. They use or misuse the verse judge not lest you be judged to avoid the discomfort of saying that anything anybody does is wrong and when someone in the church or in their family or even a public figure is openly immoral or godless they often say well you know it says judge not lest you be judged amen yeah, Gary said that's Satan's favorite scripture. In effect, they, they pretend not to see good or evil or somehow think it is spiritually superior to not notice good and evil. Yet, clearly in that verse, Jesus was condemning judgment that is self-righteous or unmerciful. He condemned he didn't condemn all judgment. He condemned the kind of judgment that sees the speck of dust in your brother's eye but cannot see the log in your own eye. Jesus himself exercised righteous judgment and he taught us to do the same. He told his disciples to, that you will know people, particularly teach false teachers he was talking about but you will know people by their fruits what people are on the inside actually shows itself and we're supposed to be able to see that and make a discernment or a judgment on that and you know jesus is the one he's the one that said if your brother sins against you go and tell him his fault i mean that doesn't sound very much like judge not lest you be judged at least the way people interpret it hebrews 5 14 says the people that are mature are those who have their senses trained to discern good and evil. So, 
don't let your fear of being accused of being judgmental keep you from obeying God or from obeying your God-given discernment. Paul said, take no part in the worthless deeds of evil and darkness. Instead, even expose them. Ephesians 5.11. Of course, we are to be gracious and forgiving to one another. Peter said, love covers a multitude of sins. And we, you know, we, we cover a cover one another with a lot of love, don't we? We just cover our faults and our stumblings, our sins with, with a lot of love. And we are not going around breathing down each other's necks, finding faults. That's not what this is about. We should not be going around with a suspicious or a critical eye on other people at all. We, part of love is that we believe the best about one another. And yet there are times when a Christian must be corrected or in some cases must be even removed from the fellowship, which is, of course, what Paul was dealing with here. And where, chur- where churches do not or will not exclude anyone for any sin they are no longer functioning under the authority of Jesus Christ and the word of God. For instance, if if we would refuse to never discipline anyone ever for any sin, we would effectively remove ourselves from under the lordship of Jesus Christ and the authority of his word. I mean, Jesus himself is the one who established the principle of removing a person from the fellowship for unrepentant sin. Matthew 18, 15, if your brother sins against you, go and tell him his fault between you and him alone. If he listens to you, you have gained your brother. If he does not listen, take one or two others along with you that every charge may be established by the evidence of two or three witnesses. If he refuses to listen to them, Tell it to the church, and if he refuses to listen even to the church, let him be to you as a Gentile or a tax gatherer. In other words, let him be removed from the church. Jesus said be, uh, to deal with a person's sin in private first and only bring in others if the sinning person is unrepentant. But eventually, if there is no repentance, that person must be removed from the fellowship of the church And that, of course, was a situation in Corinth with this sexual immorality that was going on, unrepentant, of course, continuing to go on in the church. We think only, or I'll say that, I'll change that. We think mainly, most of us, okay, let's keep qualifying this. Most of us think mainly of the human feelings or consequences of being removed from fellowship. And they are dramatic. I mean, I don't think it takes much imagination to just think if you were in that situation, how that would feel. And I know there's some churches that have abused this, and obviously we're not talking about misuse or abuse of this principle. But we tend to think mainly of the human side of things, the human feelings and consequences of this removal. 
But what is going on in the spiritual realm is far more dramatic and far more important. In, if you, as you read this passage, in the mind of Paul and the New Testament church, to be put outside the fellowship of the church was to be handed over to Satan. It was to be removed from the spiritual protection of the church family and to be in the domain of Satan. There are unseen heavenly hosts at work for you inside the fellowship of the church. And there are unseen demonic forces at work on those outside the church. And I think this explains why why Paul said, I have decided to deliver such a one over to Satan for the destruction of his flesh so that his spirit may be saved in the day of the Lord Jesus. I think we trivialize being part of a church family today because we do not know these spiritual realities. In the church, we are on God's ground. In the church, we are on God's territory. But as John said, the whole world out there lies in the power of the evil one. And it is very sad to me to see so many people voluntarily live outside the fellowship of the church. They are, in effect, handing themselves over to Satan. They have placed themselves in grave spiritual danger and do not even realize it. Now, the goal of this strong discipline was that his flesh might be destroyed, that his spirit may be saved. This may mean the goal of discipline was that his sinful deeds of the flesh would be destroyed. That seems to be where most commentators come down on this. It may also mean that this man would experience some kind of supernatural physical affliction so that he might repent and be saved from spiritual destruction. Either way, the goal was to restore him. Either way, the goal was that in the end he might be saved. And this passage does not guarantee that in the end this person would be saved, but that he may be saved. Then Paul clarified this by saying that he he did not mean that we are not to associate with non-Christians who are sinning, okay? And he adds this, the comment, which Mike read earlier, then you would have to go out of the world. He's saying, obviously I didn't mean that if I told you not to associate with non-Christians that are sinning. Every non-Christian sinning, living and sinning in some way. And if I told you to not associate with, with that, group of people, you'd have to go out of the world. No, he says, but I wrote you not to associate with a so-called brother if he is a sexually immoral person or a greedy person or an idolater or is verbally abusive or habitually drunk or a swindler, not even to eat with such a person. For what business of mine is it to judge outsiders? Do you not judge those who are within the church, but those who are on the outside? God judges Remove the evil person from among yourselves. That's verses 11 through 13. Basically, Paul said we should no longer fellowship with someone who claims to be a Christian and yet is living a, as a sexually immoral person or a, an idolater, or 
a greedy person, a verbally abusive person, or habitually drunk or a swindler. In other places, Paul emphasized that we were not to uh, fellowship with people who sow uh, division or strife among the church family. Paul said, warn a divisive person once and then warn them a second time. After that, have nothing to do with them. Paul also said, if anyone does not obey what we say in this letter, take note of that person and have nothing to do with him. That was in a letter to the Thessalonians. So this principle that we are talking about this morning is not found in like one obscure, questionable text of Scripture. It's, I mean, it's consistent from what Jesus said it's found in many letters uh, of, of, to the church. But one of the things that I think is clear from, from those passages is that we are to uh, confront or exclude from fellowship only for sins that are sinful according to God's word. We don't go around confronting each other or dis, disassociating with other people based on our own convictions or rules or ideas, but only on what God himself has said. Of course, not every sin or failure means someone should be asked to leave the church. Uh, Galatians 6.1 gives us, I think, uh, the more common or most normal way that sin is dealt with. Uh, in Galatians 6.1, Paul said, Brothers, if anyone is caught in any transgression, you who are spiritual should restore him in a spirit of gentleness. Keep watch on yourself, lest you too be tempted. So in this passage here is a person caught or ensnared in a sin. This person doesn't, doesn't seem to be, at least, openly rebelling or stubbornly unrepentant. He or she is just doing something that is clearly sinful, though. So spiritual brothers or sisters in the church are to go to this person and help them out of their sin. And they're to do this without being mean or harsh, but they're to do it with gentleness and humility. Hebrews 5, verse 2, says that a, a priest under the Old Covenant was able to deal gently with those who are ignorant and are going astray since he himself is subject to weakness. And that passage was obviously to direct us to Christ, but yet it, it brings out a very important principle. Uh, the, the priest under the Old Covenant he had to deal first with his own sins and then for the sins of the people. And so he was able to deal gently with those who it says were ignorant and were going astray because he knew that he himself was subject to weaknesses. And so that's the heart, that's the mindset, that's the disposition that we come to a brother or sister, sometimes even to our kids when they are 
going astray or being disobedient or sinning. We do not come as a self-righteous judge. Uh, We do not cruelly gossip about them or condemn them or slander them. No, we come aware of our own weaknesses and that we have had our own sins that have needed to be forgiven. And then I think it is very important to understand another principle when we are dealing with uh, sin in the church, and that is this. We are to help people out of their sin according to their personal condition and response. Here's what I mean. 1 Thessalonians 5.14, Paul said, We urge you, brothers and sisters, admonish the unruly, encourage the faint-hearted, Help the weak. Be patient with everyone. There's three kinds of people here. Weak and faint-hearted and unruly. Some people are weak and just need help. So that's what you do for that person. Okay? So you come to someone and you say, you know, I see, I see you're struggling with this or living in defeat in this area, and I I want to help you get free of this attitude or this way of talking or living that I see in your life. God God has so much better things for you, and I just want you to enjoy the life that he has for you, and I just want to help you. And with some people, that is all that is needed. You come alongside and you help the weak. Others lack courage to do the right thing and they need encouragement. So you come to this person and say, you know, I know you may feel fearful or intimidated, but God has called you to obey him and by his spirit, he will empower you to do the right thing. God's spirit is in you and he will help you to love that person or to forgive that person or to give up that habit I'm praying for you to be strong and courageous to do the right thing. And that's what some people need. Encourage the faint-hearted or those who lack courage. And then some people are unruly and need a warning or admonishment. Years ago, uh, I gave a message, I think it kind of shocked some people, I gave a message entitled, uh, Dealing with Unruly Christians. And, you know, that there is an element of unruly Christians in the body, and we just, we have, they, they have to be helped out of their sin too, right? Some people just need a stronger word than others. They, they will not get the message without that. Subtle hints or gentle reminders about doing the right thing will not work with them. It'll just roll right off these people. And thank God, for Christian men and women who love people enough to admonish the unruly. And then Paul added at the very end of that, which I think is so fitting, and be patient with all people. You know, just in whoever we're dealing with, that's just something to remember. When we're helping people with their, their sin, I think this applies in our families and our, with our kids, with one another in the body of Christ, 
Just remember to be, be patient with all people when you're doing this. So, church is to be a place where we celebrate, celebrate Christ. It's to be a place where we love one another. It's to be a place where we enjoy one another. It's a place where we rejoice and sing together, but we're to do that in holiness. We are to be unleavened bread. We're to get rid of the old leaven that we may may be a new lump. Church is a holy place. We're God's dwelling place. Sin has no place here. And as members of one another, as members of one another, because we love the Lord and because we love each other, we gently but faithfully deal with sin to keep the church holy and pure pure and sincere like an unleavened loaf of bread. Let's pray.